I think it's always great to start out a message with good news. For those of you not aware of the fact, uh, Matt and Kristen Peckham, uh, who many of you know, uh, had a baby boy this past week. So uh, they're celebrating the second addition to their family. So I uh, want to celebrate with them. And for um, others that knew, uh, know Brian Kadalin and knew Caroline Mallory when she was a student at WPI and attended here, uh, they got married last weekend. And so I had the privilege of doing that wedding down in, in Richmond, Virginia. So we've had some neat things happening in the life of our, of our church re- lately. So, you know, um, back in January, I sat down to lay out uh, a pre-Easter sermon series. I, I think it's always a very healthy thing for us to focus in on the events of Easter, to, to really process this greatest redemptive work of God in a very thorough fashion every year. And, and, um, and the theme that God really led in my heart this year was the theme that I've adopted as peaks and valleys. And, and a lot of it is because through my spiritual journey, I've seen some folks that they get into moments where they're in a deep valley. Things are just really hard, right? And, and, and out of that, they really begin to seek God in the midst of their crisis. But when they get to the peak, they have a tendency just to kind of forget about God and move on. Sometimes it's just the opposite. There are some people who, who kind of experience God in the good times, but when life gets hard, they, they feel that somehow or another God's abandoned them, and they're, they just kind of jettison God from their life and go in a different direction. And what's interesting about the life of Christ as you lead up to the cross is that these final weeks, if not days, of Jesus' journey here on the planet, he experienced some incredible peaks and some devastating valleys. I mean, for example, a peak, the triumphal entry, right? The nation is just throwing their arms open to him, right? And welcoming him into the, into the city and, and welcoming him as the conquering Messiah. And, and, and I, mean, I mean, it's got to be a great day, right, in the life of Jesus. Then just a few days later, he's got Judas betraying him. And that's just a kind of a, a tip of many different peaks and valleys that Jesus went through. And so I, I really wanted to take a look at these final days of the life of Jesus and see how he experienced and then navigated these peaks and valleys and to see if there were some navigation tools that we could find for ourselves to move through all those. But little did I know that that theme was going to be so prophetic for myself personally and for the churches that we work with in, in Rwanda as well. You know, going to Rwanda and being a part of Good Rain every year is just a, it's a spiritual high, right? You know, you, you get to go over, you're, you're, you're there among, you know, 60 guys who are just really hungry to study the Word of God, are grateful for you being there. You're in a position to be, you know, a conduit through where a lot of blessings flow to them. And, and there's just a tremendous sense of, of being blessed because you're getting to be a blessing, right? You know, and, and, and so, you know, there, some of it's little things, you know, like, like this year, last year I bought a whole bunch of shirts and took them with me to give out to the guys, right? And, and I've done that every year. So, and I even bought things as small as youth larges to take to these grown men. And a lot of them were swimming in them. So we had to hire a, a seamstress. So this year we just, we just got a local shirt shop that brought in like 120 dress shirts. And they got to pick exactly what f- fit them. And I remember one pastor, 
I'm off track here, but one pastor, you know, he, they told him over, you're a small, you're a small, you're a small. He just wouldn't believe it. He got a medium shirt. In Rwanda, if you open it, you own it. There is no returns, right? So he opens it, he puts it on, and his, and his, and his shirt is hanging off of his hands about, about four inches. And he's walking across the sanctuary, right? And, he, and he's like, what am I going to do now, right? And, and they're saying, well, tough, we told you, that kind of thing. I said, no, 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 give the guy a different shirt, you know? And then, and then somebody else who needed to meet him hadn't opened theirs yet, so we were able to exchange that. But, but you know, it's just simple. To, and you think, you know what, it's just such a blessing, to get to be a blessing. It's a spiritual high. And, and this year was matched when I got home and then immediately went right off to Virginia to do this wedding with Brian and with Kara. And it's, a, it's kind of a side piece of that. I got to see our son Joshua and, and our daughter-in-law Jillian who live in the D.C. area. And it was just a, a great experience. But then Saturday night, you know, you're tired, all the travel, et cetera. You're, saying, you're, sitting, you're feeling you're fatigued. And then I get the first ear infection I've had in 45 years. So I'm going to whine a little bit here and just play my little violin and say, you know, and then, and I, I and, and I've been sick all week, you know, just bare, I haven't been out of the house in three days. It's the first time I've been out. So you, you don't want to greet me on your way out. Go out the other door. I'll stand over here and, and be quarantined, you know, and, 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 you know, it's supposed to be one of those times you come back, you're energized for Easter. You want to get going and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's just like, I, I can't do anything, you know? And so it, it's kind of a peak and kind of a valley. But much more so for our brothers in Rwanda, you know, our experience with them is always a high for them. This year, not only were we able to do our normal teaching, but we were able to do a a, a marriage retreat for the pastors and their spouses. And, and, um, and, you know, for them, it's it's a national conclave. They get to pray together, fellowship together, strategize together. They learn a lot. They, they, all kinds of stuff. And then right after we left, the nation implemented a new set of regulations for the churches related to building standards. And in the capital city alone of Kigali, which is a city of about a million people, they closed 714 churches. So just, just, just think, I mean, Boston's a city of about 4 million people, close proper, right? You know, if you, if you think about the area inside of 128, and it's a better part of about 4 million people kind of live in that area, imagine if they closed 2,500 churches in that region because of the new standards. And, and, and some of the standards are pretty reasonable. Like if you're going to have a church building and hold services and have people there, you've you, you, you got to have a toilet. I mean, that kind of seems natural, right? You know, and, but there's a few other things. But it's devastating to these churches, you know, and, and on... And four of those churches that were impacted were churches that were in our network. Three of them, which we had been in just this past trip. Two of them I had preached in, and, and another, we had a group of people who had gone out, Christina and, and the team had gone out and worked with some leaders there. And, and actually, it's, it's an interesting scenario. Now they're getting closed by this regulation, but they wanted to tear that building down earlier to put a road through, but the church was having such an impact on the crime in the community, they decided to leave it open, and now it's closed. And, and, and so on top of that, the country is getting ready to implement a standard that says if you're going to be the pastor of a church, you have to have theological training. I haven't exactly defined what that is yet, but what is clear is that 85% of the pastors in Rwanda have no theological training at all. So, so they're literally looking down the barrel of closing 85% of the churches in the nation. That's kind of going from a peak 
to a valley, right? You hear the prayer request saying, you know, we are, we are in a desperate place. Pray for us. We, we do not know how we are going to meet this challenge. And, and that's an experience that a lot of us go through. Maybe different dynamics, but we have peaks and we have valleys. And for many of us, either the peak or the valley is what trips us up spiritually and we don't keep going forward. And so I want to use this series to look at some things from the life of Christ that can speak to us about how to navigate the peaks and the valleys. I mean, the core of it is to really look at what happened in the life of Christ, to understand it and apply it, but also to draw some truths out for us. And I want to start today in the Gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter. And I'd love for you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 18. If you're using one of our pew Bibles or chair Bibles that's underneath your seat, you're going to find it on page 890 in your text. And I want to look at three scenes quickly from around the city of Jericho, right? Um, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem from at least the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 13, verse 22, it tells us that he was going from village to village on his way to Jerusalem. We don't know how far back that that started, but he has been traveling towards Jerusalem now for five, for five chapters. When he gets to the city of Jericho, he really has entered into the gateway city to make your way up to Jerusalem. So most Jews would travel on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then when they got down to the, the area where Jericho is, they would cross the river, and from there they would make their way back up to the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's a difference of about 17 miles between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it was a climb of about 3,200 feet over those 17 miles. That's about the height of Mount Monadnock, right? Because Jericho is at 825 feet below sea level, and the Dead Sea is even lower, right, further downstream. But it's 825 feet below sea level, and the city of Jerusalem is on the top of a mountain that's 2,400 feet above sea level. So that's a 3,200-foot difference between the two. And the city of Jericho was a beautiful city. In fact, Herod, when he was the king of the area, that's where he had his winter palace. Had palm trees and a river, and it was fertile, and they had great fruit and all kinds of other stuff. It was a vibrant economy. It was just a great place. It was just one of those destination-type cities. And it also served as a gateway of travel from the north, avoiding the area of Samaria and going up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins to arrive in Jericho. He's ready to start making his actual ascent into Jerusalem. And there are three scenes that take place. One starts in verse 31 of chapter 18, where he has a teaching moment with his disciples. Jesus, he either fails as a teacher, which he doesn't, or they're pretty dense as pupils, which they are, right? So we have one of the, then he has the healing of a blind guy on his way into the city, and then on his way out of the city, he has this encounter with a guy by the name of Zacchaeus that a lot of us know about. Let's look at these three things just real quickly, and then I'll draw some points for us. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then, it says, he took the twelve, that's a reference to the disciples aside, and he told them, listen, pay attention, don't miss this, right? This is the third time he's talked to them about this in this journey to Jerusalem. Third time. You guys haven't got it yet? Pay attention. Listen up. We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written through the prophets about the Son of Man is going to come to pass. It will be accomplished. 
He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they'll kill him. And he will rise in the third day. And the disciples said, oh, we get it, finally. Nah. Look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, a couple dynamics that are going on here. One is, up front, Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples understood that what was happening in Jerusalem, what was going to happen to Jerusalem, wasn't by accident. He didn't want them to go back and have revisionist history afterwards. He wanted to say, this is God's ordained plan. I know what I'm walking into, and this is what's going to happen. And when it finally does dawn on you exactly what has happened and why, I want you to know that this was the purpose all along, right? So he doesn't want them to go in thinking, all right, he's going to be this conquering military leader or whatever. He's going to throw off the Romans and, and have, you know, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, well, you know what? Hey, you know, he didn't make it. So let's turn him into a suffering servant who died in the cross for us instead. You know, let's come up with plan B. He doesn't want them to think that. He wants them to know that this is the agenda from the very beginning. And they don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because they already have their preconceived notions about the way God's supposed to work. This is not the Messiah that God's got planned. I know what God's going to do. You don't have a clue, right? They already have these pre- And God uses that in his sovereignty to prevent them from seeing what he's really doing. And you have this dynamic that's going on where Jesus is trying to make it clear, but God does not want them to understand until after it's all over. And God uses their own desire to embrace what they think over what God is doing on a regular basis. They don't see even though it's right before their eyes. And Jesus wants to prove that point to them. So we have the next scene that occurs. So right out of this teaching, and, it, and if you were reading this in the Gospel of Mark, what you would understand is that James and John, who are brothers, who are part of the 12, who don't, they, they understand something big is ready to happen. They don't get what Jesus is talking about, but they come to him and say, you know, we get a request to make of you. When you come into your kingdom... We really would like to be like the vice president and the speaker of the house, right? We, we, we want to be the vice president and, and the chief justice. You know, we, we want to have the cream of the crop jobs. You know, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. So Jesus engages a blind man. Pick up with me in verse 35. So as, they drew new, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Couldn't see. Noah, you know, there's no social services, right? So his way of do, making a living, way of providing for himself was to beg. So he's sitting on the side of the road, and he's begging, saying, alms for the poor, right? And hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this meant. In other words, you know, there's normal traffic, et cetera, but, you know, Jesus is coming, right? So the, you, you can, the, the intensity level, the noise level, the concentration of the people just going on up. And, 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 and so, you know, he's what, what? hey, what's going on? I can't see. Tell me what's going on. He says, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front of him told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Can can you imagine that picture? You know, here, here is a guy sitting on the side of the road, 
who, who is blind, has no way of providing for himself, whose life is really in despair. I mean, he's in a permanent valley, right? And along comes the one guy that almost everybody knows might have a chance of healing him, and everybody standing in front of him was saying, would you just shut up? You're driving me nuts. You know, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, right? It shows how callous we can get. We can look at our world from our perspective and say, would you just shut up? You're driving me nuts. You know, and, and so there's a be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. You don't matter, right? You don't matter. Just be quiet. But he does matter. So Jesus stopped, and he commanded that he be brought to him. And when he drew near, he asked him this question, what do you want me to do for you? I've often thought how I would answer that question if I had a Damascus Road experience, my own Damascus Road experience. And I encountered Jesus face to face, and he said to me, what do you want me to do for you? You know, and in my worst nightmares, I would say, you know, I, I hope I wouldn't say, I'd like to know the lottery numbers. You know, I, you know, I mean, you'd hate to boil it down to something that worldly, right? But what would you say? What do you want me to do for you? But this guy, he didn't have any doubt. And this is really an object lesson to how the disciples just didn't see what Jesus was saying. This guy says, Lord, you know, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus said, you know what? Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And instantly, immediately he could see. And they began to follow him, glorifying God and all the people. And when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Object lesson fulfilled. You, you see, but you don't see. And you need to pray and ask God to give you the eyes to see. And, God, and that, the ability to have that happen comes by faith. And so he follows him and he gives glory to him. Third scene. So they enter into Jericho. And he's getting ready to pass through and move on. And we come to this interesting guy by the name of Zacchaeus. So let's pick up with verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, to understand this passage a little bit, and, and I know we've talked, for some of you, this will be reviewed, but tax collectors, I mean, we don't like the IRS, right? Especially this time of year, right? But, you know, we, we don't hold it against them personally. They're just doing their jobs. That was not true in the ancient world. To be a tax collector meant that you actually bid on the right to collect taxes in a certain area. And, and, and when you did that, I mean, you, you promised the Roman government you were going to give them a certain amount of money every year, and so you were a traitor. You were working with the occupiers, right? It, it, it's just like, you know, you're complicit with the enemy. So they were seen as traitors. But the only way they could make it work was to steal from you. So they were also thieves. So they were traitors and thieves. So they were not well-liked. This guy's a chief tax collector, which means he bought the rights to the whole city, and they all had a bunch of other guys who were working underneath them who were all stealing from you as well, right? And then he got a cut of everything they stole from you, plus his own stuff. And this was a lucrative market because everybody's coming and going from the north to the south, etc. And so Zacchaeus is not a popular figure. In fact, the Jewish law in the Mishnah actually said it was okay in the eyes of God to lie to tax collectors because all you were doing was protecting your stuff. So that's an interesting mix, right? So here's this guy, Zacchaeus. And he's seen as being somebody, let me put it, if, 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 this, if, 
this table is the orbit of God's grace, he's, he's way over here somewhere, right? He, he, he is, God does not even, if God recognizes Zacchaeus at all, all God wants to do is kill him. That's the way they looked at it. God has absolutely zero care for this person. All God wants to do is squish this guy like a bug because he's a traitor and a thief and he's a sinner. And that's the way he was viewed, right? So here we have the story. He's trying to see Jesus, see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. All things being equal, in those days he was probably under five feet tall given the average height and that kind of stuff. So he's, he runs ahead. And he climbs up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today I must stay at your house. Interesting dynamic. He's trying to see Jesus, but Jesus is the one who sees him. Right? And Jesus said, come on down, I'm going to stay with you. So he came down quickly, and he welcomed him joyfully. And, and all who saw it, they began to complain. He said, you know, what's he doing? He's going to lodge with a sinful guy. You know, we, we, we thought he was a prophet. We thought he was godly. We thought he was righteous. And, and he's hanging out to this guy that God just wants to judge and crush and doesn't care about us. But Zacchaeus stood there, and he said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if, exhorted, if I've exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Basically what he does is he commits to his financial ruin in the name of being redeemed in the, by Christ. And Jesus responds and says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, these three scenes are connected together, right? The disciples don't see the mission of Jesus. He uses the healing of the blind man to show them that they need to have their eyes open. And when those eyes are open, they're going to see that his mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. Those who are outside the bounds of God's grace and care are actually the ones who are the sons of Abraham that God is trying to bring home. So all of that goes together, right? But there's some great, great insights, I think, for you and I about how to navigate the peaks and valleys of our spiritual journey. I, I think the thing that kept Jesus on a steady pilgrimage to the cross and then raised from the empty group is, is, is he had a, a much bigger perspective. He, he saw, he knew what was going on. And here, here, here's three things. First of all, and it's just a little bit of a kind of a, of a side the, the, the incredible place of faith in our spiritual journey. It, it, it is the faith of the blind man that makes him well, right? It is the faith of the blind man that has made him well. Faith is in, in our journey is essential to be able to navigate the peaks and the valleys, because it's the thing that allows us to look beyond the circumstances and see the activity of God. And, and in the midst of all of that, it also get, helps us to get to, it's the only thing that's going to motivate us to reach for the spiritual tools that God has given us. Here's the second thing I want you to see here. And, and, it, and it comes out of the, 
the, the blind man, the Bartimaeus, who's on the side of the road, and he's screaming out, and everybody's telling him, would you just shut up? You're making a nuisance out of yourself. Don't you know God doesn't care about you? That's why you're blind in the first place. And he just continues to persist in his pleas to God. And out of those pleas, God answers his prayer, and he sees. And, and it would be easy to make the application to look at the, the role of prayer in helping us to navigate the spiritual journeys, right? And, but but I, I want to take it just a step beyond that. And, and this is a message probably as much for me as it is for any of you. But, but you know, often we, we, our prayers are, when we hit, we're on the peak, we're like, God, well, just keep me here. Everything's good, God. I, just, just don't let it change. Right? And, and, and when we get into the valley, it's like, God, well, just get me out of here. Just get me out of here. God, do something. Fix it. It's broken. Make it better. Lead me back up. And, and, and that's where our prayer is. God, change my circumstances. Either keep them the way they are or change them where they're at. And it's a whole different thing to say, God, I want to understand what you're doing. It's a whole different thing in our prayer journey to be focused on asking, God, I want to understand what you're doing and why. You know, when we were in Rwanda, we taught the book of Exodus to the, the guys. And um, because the book of Exodus really is the gospel of the Old Testament. It is the story of redemption in the Old Testament. And it's interesting that at the very beginning of the journey, you know, Moses has, has grown up in Pharaoh's household. He's, he's, he's been chased off to Midian. He's come back. The Jewish leaders have accepted him and Aaron as having had some kind of a meeting with God, and they have their first encounter with Pharaoh, and things go from bad to worse, right? You know, they go into Pharaoh, and they say, hey, listen, God said we need to go out and worship or whatever, and the people are like, you know, and, and Pharaoh's like, I have no idea who this God is that you're talking about. And, and if you've got enough time to think that you can plan a trip to be gone for a week or more, you know what? That means you've got too much time on your hands. So not only do you have to keep making the same number of bricks as you've had to make, we're just not going to give you the materials anymore. You can go find those on your own. And life goes from bad to worse for these guys. And, and they, they, are, they are peeved at Moses and Aaron. said, you came here and you said you were going to make our lives better and they're worse. And Moses and Aaron go into God, and they say, God, what are you doing? Things have gone from bad to worse. And God says to him, yeah, that's the way I had a plan all the time. He says, now you're going to see what I can do. And, 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 and the ability to see the activity of God is a lot different than just being able to endure our circumstances and hoping them to get back to a place where we... And, 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 and having that persistence of prayer, of understanding what it is that God wants. i got one last truth for you. And that is the, the, the incredible necessity to live our lives on purpose. To live our lives on mission. You know, Jesus, through this whole journey, you know, he, he never lost sight of the fact that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And whether it was a cheering crowd on the side of the, the roads of Jericho or on the sides of the roads leading into Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry, or whether it was the screaming crowds on the morning of his death yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He never lost sight of his mission. It's a, it's a powerful thing, you know. Uh, some of you probably read in the paper or read in the news in the last couple of days about the recent attacks in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso. Any of you followed those at all? Just a couple, right? 
So uh, Burkina Faso is a nation that's in sub-Sahara, West Africa, one of the poorest nations of the world. It's the third time since 2016 that they have been the, uh, the, the, the um, target of extremist attacks. Uh, twice before uh, places that focused where Westerners tend the tendency to gather were attacked. This particular, this particular time, they not only attacked the French embassy, but they also tried to blow up a portion of the army headquarters where they thought there was going to be a meeting taking place of the heads of the army. And so, so the, you know, the room was completely destroyed. The only reason why all the captains and colonels and generals weren't killed was that they happened to relocate the meeting at the last minute not because they knew of what was going to happen, just because they landed up relocating it to a different place. Well, why do I tell you all of that? You know, since 2003, we have supported a couple that's lived in Burkina Faso. Their names are Joel and Karen Gray. You know, in the early part of 2017, they came home to sort through whether or not they should stay living there. They have four children. Their oldest child is a senior at Gordon College. Two of them were going to need to go to boarding school outside of the country, and they're actually in Niger. And then they were going to have one who was still living with them. And, they, and, and because of all the toll, the extremist attacks, and et cetera, were taken on them as a family, because Joel's the director of the mission work there in that country, and also for the country of Mali, they really asked the question, should we go back? They came home to pray through the question of whether or not we should go back. And if you and I were making travel plans, we would say, ah, I'm not going to Ouagadougou, right? I, I, I'm not going to It's just not safe there. They left in July to go back to Burkina Faso. Why? Because that was God's mission for their lives. What sees us through the peaks and what sees us through the valleys is knowing what our mission is. And, and, and that is one of the greatest life tools that we can have as the children of God. Sees us through the great times, sees us through the difficult times, is knowing what your life is supposed to be about before God. And my challenge to you today is to ask God to open your eyes, to do so through persistent prayer, that you see the mission that God has for your life, and through that you can navigate the peaks and valleys on a steady journey to the victory of the empty tomb. Let's pray together for just a moment. God, we are grateful for your grace. We're grateful that no matter how far we were from the, the center of your circle of grace, your grace reaches us. No matter how lost we are, you seek us out you find us. God, I pray today that we have people who know what our mission is before you. There's parts of that that are common to all of us. There are parts that are unique to each and every one of us. God, give us eyes to see. Put the request on our hearts and our minds and on our lips that we might see what it is that you want for our lives and that it would become our mission that guides us through the ups and downs they are going to come. And God, you've told us in the world that we're going to have trial and tribulation, but we should be of good cheer. We should be of good courage. 
God, in the trials and tribulations, we experience the ups and downs. Give us the tools to be people who live with cheer and with your peace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.